and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. So again, the book is called More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and The Cutting-Edge Medicine That Cure the Incurable. And it's essentially about what life is like for a family that expects life to kind of continue on a upward trajectory and having that entire assumption blown out by a rare disease, how that affects the family, how that affects our uh, relationship, and how we struggle to both keep our family together and to find a cure for our son who was diagnosed with a very rare, very lethal immune deficiency called CGD, which made him extraordinarily vulnerable to a wide variety of bacterial and fungal infections and unable to fight them off. After years of um, struggling with this, we decide ultimately to take him to Duke University Hospital, where he undergoes one of the most harrowing, risky, and uh, lengthy medical procedures known to man, a uh, bone marrow transplant using umbilical stem cells. And after a year or so of grappling with that and all its uh, ordeals, Sebastian makes it home. He recovers. I'm blessed to say we learned a lot from the great doctors and nurses and the other families that we bonded with down there. And at the end of the book, we're keeping it together. And we're hoping that the book can show other families in similar situations that they can do the same, that they can help their kids, be there for them, embrace their own vulnerabilities and weaknesses and failures, and still make it to the, uh, make it to the other side. And where will they be able to find the book? Oh, yeah. So um, your local bookstores, Amazon. Barnes and Noble, uh, anywhere you can buy um, books these days. Our publisher, Avery, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, is doing a real yeoman's job trying to get it out there. It should be easily accessible. So by all means, feel free to pick up a copy. The book thing, I, I will say this, you know, I, the, the book is very intensely personal. If I write another book, I will not write it in the first person. But it was very much written with a mind to people who have tens of thousands of other things they can do with their leisure time. Um, I, I did write it with a reader in mind. and I, I, want, I wanted the reading experience to be engaging and fun and not feel like a chore or a duty. So I think you'll find it, I hope you'll find it, a, a fun and entertaining read as well as a uh, quote-unquote important. Welcome to part two of our discussion with Miguel Sancho and his wife, Felicia Morton, who is a very active patient advocate. Last time we heard about the grueling process they and their son Sebastian endured to cure him of chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD. Miguel, could you remind us what CGD is and what it does? 
Absolutely. And thank you again for having us back on the show and being able to participate in this very important discussion. To answer the question, yes, CGD, chronic granulomatous disease, is a monogenetic mutation on the X chromosome that results in the patient not being able to fight off certain bacterial and fungal infections um, that relates specifically to the functioning of an important white blood cell known as the neutrophil, whose main task is to surround and devour these pathogens when they infect the body. And CGD patients basically make the neutrophils, but the neutrophils can't do their job. And so as a result, when they get an infection, the neutrophils will swarm the site of the infection, but they won't get the job done. And as a result, these cells will build up into something called granulomas. That's the name, just the very clunky name, chronic, chronic granulomatous disease. So basically, the upshot is patients have to avoid all these kind of potential sources of infection, which can include everything from grass to leaves to hay, of course, other sick kids. And it makes life uh, living with the disease, if you choose to live with it, akin to what a lot of people have experienced in this past year, trying to avoid COVID. Constant Clorox wiping, wearing masks, social distancing, quarantining, essentially living in a prison of your own design. That is a very taxing thing for a lot of families. And Thank you for that. So today we're going to talk about the decisions that you guys were faced with as, as you went through this, this process, this over a year long process. And then we'll reflect back and, and talk about some of the decisions that, that Sonneth may be facing. So can you give us a summary, a couple of the big decisions and, and how you guys approach them? I will let Felicia expand on this a little bit. The one thing I will say about this particular disease in this particular situation is it gave us a number of paths forward, none of which were particularly easy or uh, obvious. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not making light of the disease leukemia. Leukemia is a very serious disease. If you get it, if you get diagnosed with leukemia, however, usually, oftentimes, it's very straightforward. You have to get a bone marrow transplant and deal with all its attendant risks and and agonies, or you will die. We didn't have um, the quote unquote benefit of that clear path forward. And so we had all these other uh, decisions to make and to live with, which I'll let Felicia describe. Yes. And to answer that question, uh, going back to what Miguel said, uh, it, it is possible to live with uh, CGD. And, and in fact, uh, there, there are um, times when parents of children or patients themselves will feel very fearful of their environment. But on the flip side, with proper medication every day, it is possible to live well. Uh, you don't have to wear a, a mask every day. Well, you know, before uh, COVID-19, children could go to school, patients could go to work. Uh, but the fear of having an infection, even with all of these precautions, avoiding all of the risks, on average, uh, patients with CGD will have a life-threatening infection once every three and a half years. Patients have to live with a very heightened level of a caution. Families who are taking care of children have to always be on guard all of the time for these risks. But you can um, live well. And, and so that's what made the decision very challenging for us because we could continue to give 
Sebastian daily prophylaxis, or we could undergo this very risky curative option, which um, we at first thought it, it might be a traditional bone marrow transplant. And then we found out that that option was closed to us. And so as we're talking to these points as to what the cascade of decisions are for parents, there, there is often what seems to be a clear path, and then that path might be shut. And then we needed to go to the next path, and that door was shut, and the next path, and the next path. And so it, in terms of our case, we thought that our daughter might be a match for Sebastian. We found out that was not the case for a bone marrow uh, donor. Then we thought that we could go to uh, the bone marrow registry and and get another uh, a match from uh, another donor. And we found out because uh, Miguel and I are of mixed ethnicity, we could not find one uh, match in the bone marrow registry. Then we were told that an anonymous umbilical uh, cord donor match would be the, the only option. The decision-making tree, if you will, we found that this tree did not have abundance of leaves. We had to go through and look at what seemed to be wonderful, not wonderful, but just unlike other diseases, we have had many options. So we said, okay, this is, we're, we're grateful for this. We have all these miraculous ways. And we had images of perhaps our daughter being a match. And we had images of meeting this you know, anonymous uh, donor, bone marrow donor who came forward and we were going to hug this person. We thought this is going to be so wonderful when we get to the end of the tunnel. And we realized that the doors kept shutting. So at like many rare families, we had to continue going down different paths and keeping our heads together while we were making these decisions. Thankfully, we were able to find specialists who were able to guide us, find other patient families who were able to guide us. And we were able to make a decision that felt right for us. And that was the anonymous umbilical cord donor option. That was what we used when Sebastian underwent uh, a stem cell transplant at Duke University Hospital. See, this is another point where I have to interject to say that what you guys are dealing with is a whole other level of what we had to deal with. And just to repeat, at the, at the risk of boring your listeners, just to say again, what an amazing thing it is that you're able to forge ahead, make these decisions, and keep it all together. Because, yeah, that is that's really, really grueling. You know, and obviously, a big part of the thing is finding doctors that you can trust and believe in. Because at the end of the day, right, you can read every single article on PubMed. You can go through every single, you know, patient's advocacy forum. But your job is to be the parent and the doctors have to be the doctor and you have to be able to trust them. You, you have to be able to kind of go with them and put your faith in them. That was a big, that was a big part of it for me. And I'll say this, one of the things I loved about our doctors at Duke, it wasn't just that they were kind. It wasn't just that they were experts. It was that they were kind of rock and roll. They are willing to roll the dice. They are willing to, you know, put a kid with only a four out of six cord blood match through transplant. Not everybody would do that. A lot of, a lot of people would say, you know what, this isn't for us. You know, we think you're not going to have a good outcome here. You, know, you should go home and pursue another route or something. And that's one of the, I think, really impressive things about about the doctors that we dealt with is that, you know, they're very caring, they're very thorough, they're very scientific, 
And at the same time, they're, they can be a little bit buccaneering when they want to, you know, save somebody's life. And I appreciate that too. That's a whole lot of decisions that no one has trained you all to make. And it's amazing that it, it, it's on the one hand, it, it, it feels, it feels weird that patients and patient families have to make these decisions. But on the other hand, it's also empowering that these decisions are available, that there are options available at least for you to make. I mean, I can only imagine how complicated these decisions are based on my experience. We have gone through several of these tough decisions that some of which we have spoken on the podcast as well. For example, Raghav kept biting his lips and tongue with his teeth. And, and he was doing that because he just did not have the motor control to stop doing it. He, he, he knew he had to stop. It was intense pain, but he just didn't know how to stop. Uh, and our only choice at that point was to pull off his teeth. And this was his baby teeth, the very first teeth that he got. And we, we, we were told that we had to pull off all of his teeth. And now he has no teeth. And hopefully he'll, he'll get out of that habit by the time when, when his permanent teeth come in. But, you know, you never know. And these are tough choices. Uh, and at that time, when we were making the decision, our family went through a lot of debate. Therapy, can we, can we, do, can, can, can we do anything else, um, like physically place something in his mouth to prevent him from biting? We, we, did, we tried a lot. And at the end of the day, the, the hard route was the, was the best route for him. And he's happy and smiling. When I'm talking to patient families, and I run an organization, I, I founded an organization called the CGD Association of America, which helps advocate for patients with CGD. And uh, we also fund research and um, we, we put out a lot of educational materials as well. And one of the things that is so important is to be at uh, a hospital that has an understanding of whatever your child or your, or your particular disease is. And in many cases, and in fact, this is in Miguel's book, we had some arguments, he and I, about how we needed to move to a place that really had a specialty in CGD. Um, because we were living in Manhattan at the time, and we thought, well, of course, you know, we're in the center of everything. We're in New York, and our, our work is here, and, uh, and there, there, surely there, there should be some good um, uh, treatment for Sebastian. And then we spread out a little bit to uh, Philadelphia, to CHOP, uh, and other places that were closer that just seemed more feasible as far as our needs. And we realized quickly, I, and I realized more quickly than Miguel that no, we had to uproot our lives and we needed to move to North Carolina where Duke is. And we needed to undergo the transplant there because they had what, for my research and talking to other uh, patient families as well, which is really important. My advocacy work, I, I say that you need both. Um, you need to speak with doctors directly um, visit those hospitals in person if you can, and also speak. Ask them if you can speak with other patient families who've undergone that same procedure. And through that, I felt um, most comfortable with um, Duke University Hospital. And I found in in my conversations with other uh, patient families that they do similar things. If if they don't move uh, there for the just for the treatment, I should say that they definitely also move there permanently. Some like us, we we moved to North Carolina for for almost a year, and we met others who had moved to North Carolina permanently. I've I've known others who have moved to be close to the National Institutes of Health from across the country. I've I've met others who have moved close to uh, various other hospitals just because um, 
as we said, once you find that level of care and the doctor who's willing to push boundaries and, and, and do things that you cannot find other doctors to do and has that level of experience in your child or your particular disease, it's so valuable. And, it, and it's almost rare in and of itself when we're talking about raising rare, finding that right fit with the right medical team can be rare, especially when we have a rare disease. So uh, moving to be next to uh, a hospital is not uncommon in our circles. Let me just chime in very briefly on that, which is just to say that Felicia is absolutely right. I mean, I, I remember it quite vividly. You know, we lived on the east side of Manhattan, literally a 15-minute walk from one of the most world-famous cancer centers and therefore, you know, bone marrow transplant centers in the world, Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is great and is, you know, deserves its reputation. But it just so happens that they had not transplanted that many kids with CGD. And it's the it's the combination of both the pediatric aspect of it and the rare disease CD, CGD aspect of it that made that reduced the number of places that could realistically had a, had a good track record of doing that particular very specialized thing to a, basically about two or three in the United States. And uh, we ultimately ended up going with Duke, as we said, and it was one of the first of many times in which I've uh, ended up saying I was wrong and Felicia was right. So, um, but I'm very happy that she was. And not every doctor is capable of doing that. Not every hospital system is 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 willing to let their doctors do it. I mean, I've I've, I've dealt with so many of these situations in the past where where doctors have have basically said, "Oh, this is the best we can do," and then you go talk to another doctor who's like, who can push the boundary a little bit more, and you go talk to another doctor who just who's who's willing to do what it takes to to get things right, and and it's 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 those folks that are transformative for for all of our kids but it's unfortunate that they are they're very hard to come by they they're not always in the place that's that's right next door to your home once you find them you just just you just hold on to them and cherish them so i'm struck just by the numbers of decisions that we've just talked about in the last 10 minutes and there are a bunch of medical decisions right which approach to take here which one sounds right which one fits our life? And then you have these other decisions. Should we move? Change our careers? Should we? I mean, just everything is swirling around. At some point, you can only collect so much information and so much data. And you get to the point where it's just you. And the doctor turns to you and said, what are we going to do? How do you guys, each, all three of you, how do you, you know, make those leaps at that moment? After all the analysis is done, the decision sitting in your lap. We started with research, and um, I, I feel that I was blessed in that I had a background in journalism and public relations, and and because of that, and also interestingly, healthcare public relations. I had worked on um, several different treatments and um, on several different clinical trials for um, pharmaceutical industry, and I had a an understanding of, of what, what I was dealing with. I had talked to patients in the past and some of them had, had these stories that were, that sounded so, you know, hopeless. And with this new miraculous drug, they had tremendous outcome that no one expected. So I used those skills in order to make these decisions for my son. I, I immediately 
began uh, from the moment our, our immunologist gave us the the diagnosis. She she had recommended some organizations that had some knowledge of immune deficiencies, and I uh, the first thing I did was call that organization. And in this case, it was the Immune Deficiency Foundation. And I I highly recommend for patients if there is an organization, even if it's just you know one other a person who you can find online who's had this disease to get in touch with that person. I'm always struck that um, a lot of people still do not avail themselves to these organizations and, and seek out this community. And I cannot say uh, enough how much this helped me in my decision-making. And uh, the Immune Deficiency Foundation immediately got me in touch with uh, another mom whose son had CGD. And we were able to talk. And uh, from that, I met other mothers, and from that, I was able to speak to other doctors that they recommended at hospitals across the country. And little by little, I was gathering more information, more data, asking for positive outcomes, asking for different treatment modalities. And all of that went into my own you know, mental database. And we were able to, A, most importantly, feel more comfortable that we weren't alone. So much of rare disease can be completely isolating. And that's terrifying in and of itself. And number two, I was able to find information that helped with my decision. And number three, I was able to make some really great friendships that we still have today. And many of these people are in the book. All of these things enabled us to put together these puzzle pieces in a way that that worked well for us. I will say also, though, that, um, you know, in addition to everything that Felicia described, about kind of gathering data, weighing options, talking to people, looking at statistics, you know, digesting personal anecdotes. There's also a real emotional side to it, right? I mean, there's like knowing what you have to do or knowing what the right decision is and then actually doing it. You know, we, you know, uh, the book talks a little bit about the approach avoidance conflict, which is a, you know, kind of well-known psychological thing, which we experienced ourselves. We, we decided is as early as like 2013 that we were going to go ahead and transplant Sebastian to Duke. <clears throat> but then that summer we had a health scare with our daughter, very minor thing, but it freaked us out so much that I was like, Oh my God, you know, we, this was just a, like a, a two or three week thing that we had to deal with, with Lydia, our daughter. And it, it, you know, really impacted us. How are we going to manage, you know, 12 months of this kind of intensity with our son? And so there was a little bit more hemming and hawing on our part. But ultimately, I think the other thing you have to take into account is what's the cost of not making a decision? What's the cost of paralysis or dawdling? And in our case, it became clear that delaying and hemming and hawing and procrastinating with Sebastian was going to put him at risk. And also, the stress of living with this thing was really eating away at our marriage and, and damaging our family. And I want to say really clearly that this doesn't necessarily apply to every family. There's plenty of families that live with rare disease, that live with, as Felicia was saying, kids grow up in families managing CGD. They can cut it. They can juggle it. They can make it work for them. I salute them. That was not the case with us. It became pretty clear both on the medical side and the personal side eventually that we had to jump off the high dive and just take our chances. Taking chances is, is pretty much all we do here. 
because none of the decisions are are, are black and white. And I, I think you talked about collecting data, information, and then and then taking an emotional decision. Beyond that, what I keep contemplating all the time is is what biases are we put? Are, what biases are are going into this decision that we are making at this point? And the biases could be our own personal interest. And personal interest is not seeing your son or daughter suffer, right? This could be the fact that you cannot move to a different place uh, because your work wouldn't allow you to. Um, or, or this could be just just this information that someone someone told you uh, on, a, on a passing by that is biasing your, your decision. And, and biases are incredibly hard to overcome because these are things that you just believe to be true unconsciously, subconsciously. You don't you don't actively think about them. It it just colors your decisions. And, and this is something that I always, always think about is, is what biases go into those decisions that we're currently making. How can we get around it? I don't have a solution to this problem, but this is this is something that I, I always think about. And when we make tough tough decisions like uh, like the ones that we were talking about here biases are incredibly important because some of those biases are what keep us comfortable right like in in some cases we as a family would rather would rather not intervene with our sons uh, our daughters life um, because it's going to create them more hardship and we would just not like to go not like to have them go through the hardship and that's a bias and that's fine stay where i am because um you know this is where i know uh, this is where i work and i uh, I, I I have my friends and family here, and I can't even imagine moving, uprooting my whole family and moving to a completely different state uh, where I know no one. And that that uh, could be one. And certainly that that is true. All those things are true. Um, I'd like to say, point out though that uh, at various hospitals, I, I we we've, we've met people from all walks of life, um, all different socioeconomic levels, and and um, there there are resources that are there. Uh, from the Ronald McDonald House to uh, various things that people do, and, and Miguel talks about that in his book. Um, so, so, but but that is one bias. The other bias is to intervene or not. And uh, there are many different ways that we can choose medical treatments for our child. One bias, I think, is that uh, one of the most powerful ones that Miguel and I talk about is our who we are as people. And one thing I struggled with, and, I, and Miguel struggled with as well is he felt that he was a father who couldn't handle this. He felt that this is not something that he was equipped to handle. I felt in my own bias and what we struggle with the most sometimes is just ourselves, our, our own demons, our own sense that we aren't capable, that we don't have the wherewithal to, to uh, handle this. I thought that I couldn't stand beside my son and watch my beloved son suffer through uh, bone marrow transplant, which is one of the most agonizing things a patient can endure. And then I also knew that, uh, and what many people don't realize is that when you have a child who undergoes a bone marrow transplant, after the child is discharged, hopefully they will be, there is almost a year of uh, the mother or a, a parent becoming the nurse. And that involves giving the child the um, infusions uh, via their their tubes and knowing how to do that and not making any false steps because that can also damage the health of your child if if not um you know worse and so the pressure of that having uh, no medical background uh, being someone who can be anxious 
thinking, can I do this? My bias was no, Felicia, you can't. This is impossible for you to stand beside your son and then also administer these very powerful medications yourself via IV. How can you possibly do that? I was daunted. And it wasn't until I spoke with another mother who galvanized me and helped me just change what I thought about myself, my bias against myself. She had two sons who had CGD who went through transplant at the same time. And she did it. And she said, Felicia, you can do this and you will do this with such power and such grace that I, I, I was able to overcome my own bias against myself. Yeah. And just, just building off that, obviously, yeah, the biases are a real thing and the biases are subconscious. By definition, you can't speak for your subconscious, right? It's subconscious. But looking back on it, and you know, also that's one of the things that I, I would say that meditation and also to a certain degree um, prayer does is kind of try to put some distance between you and your thoughts, right? Between you and your feelings, so that you can say, you know, I I am not this feeling or this thought or this inclination. I am the person experiencing this feeling or thought, right? I am the sky, everything else is the clouds. But you can you can do that all day, but still it doesn't mean you're going to be completely immune from it, right? I mean, one of the one of the biases that I would describe I had, and I I don't think I'm the only one, is that I really was biased towards doing everything I could possibly do to preserve my life pre-diagnosis. I wanted to get back on track. I wanted to find some way to just get back to normal. And that led me to kind of be in certain degrees of denial during the months before we were, when Sebastian was getting sick and getting all these infections, we hadn't been diagnosed yet, trying to minimize things, trying to, um, like Felicia was saying, minimize the amount of disruption that the treatment would ultimately cause for our, our lives. And part of it was, I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be the dad of a sick kid. I didn't want to be the person who was, you know, raising money to help uh, pay for the medical expenses or other attendant expenses. I didn't want to be the person that, you know, you know, people were pitying, right? Um, and that was a very hard thing for me to swallow that, you know, okay, the, the rules have changed, the situation has changed, and, uh, you know, I don't have to feel sorry for myself, but I do have to embrace this reality. And, everything that goes with it. And that took me some time. This must have put a huge stress on your whole family structure, your marriage, but your whole family structure. I had a question that, that I hadn't thought of before, but in the book, you talk about Lydia. And every time you talk about Lydia, your daughter, you know, the other child, every time she comes in, it's like this, this burst of light. So what role did she play in helping you navigate all these stresses? What was her role? Initially, from the very, from the very beginning of, of this, I, um, I knew that we were heading towards transplant. And, and my thinking was that she needed to come with us and she would help us through this. She would be a source of cheer for Sebastian and she would feel that she was there as a helper and that would give her a sense of strength and purpose as well and 
one thing I wanted to speak to is that sometimes uh, parents think, well, it might be better to keep our child in school. And if we have to move, um, the child will stay with other relatives and it'll be better if we don't uproot that uh, that, that healthy sibling and we don't um, maybe traumatize the sibling by having he or she witness everything that is terrible that that our unhealthy child has to endure. And uh, that's something that Miguel and I talked about because he was of that mindset too, that we keep Lydia in school in New York and, and we figure out who can stay with her here. And then I go with Sebastian down to Duke. And from the very beginning, I said, no, that's absolutely uh, not the way to go. And thankfully the medical team at Duke uh, concurred and they had a lot of information and background and, and some data on this as well, that families do better when they stay together, especially the sibling because the sibling can often feel displaced and, and siblings can feel um, jealous of the unhealthy child because this child is getting all the attention and taking uh, the parents away from them. Uh, so we, we really wanted to counteract that. And so Lydia was a source of joy for us through all of this. She is preternaturally um, uh, cheerful. Oh, she was, let me just put it that way. Uh, when she was at this younger age, she was always a, a bundle of energy and happiness and always looking um, on the bright side. Today, uh, she's going through, she's, she's 12, almost 13. And so that changes. And uh, some of it could be, you know, the typical uh, cynicism that, that a preteen uh, has for the world. And um, we're still figuring out how this has impacted her. She will say, um, you know, no one knows what I went through during that time and how hard it was on me. And we, we try to talk about this with her. And, and she, she perhaps felt in some ways that she did need it to be that the cheerful one. She did need to cheer up her brother and, and uh, help her parents be happy because she saw how much we were impacted by this. And that was a lot of pressure on her. So it's really important to talk about how the healthy children deal with it and, and look for ways to include them uh, as much as you can, have therapy, have resources available for them, uh, and try as much as you can to give them your attention as well, and continue to understand that these are things that are going to impact them for the rest of their lives. Uh, everything Felicia said was true. I'll just say, you know, one very brief little anecdote that made it all very clear to me exactly how important it is to have the sibling present during uh, procedure as rigorous and arduous as a a stem cell transplant, which is, you know, there was one point where Sebastian was like at the rock bottom. He was, you know, not interested in playing. He was just lying on his bed, miserable and vomiting, um, you know, very regularly, and just really in a bad way. And the rules for sibling visits are somewhat restrictive on the on the unit because, uh, you know, it worries about infection disease spreading and stuff but we were able to bring in Lydia once during this particular day and this, the minute she walked in he just sprang right out of bed and started smiling and wanted to play with his sister it was almost like you know the whole sick thing was just you know pretend and we had this large volume of research and stories about how you know the presence of the sibling can really help uh, a sick kid get through and of course you know i'll be the first to say that um my daughter helped me personally in ways that uh, that i'll always be grateful for her as well 
I I can step in here and and be at the other end of the tunnel you just described. So my daughters are in their early 30s now. That stuff that you're seeing at 12, someday, like when they're 20 or 21, suddenly it all evaporates and those great little kids come back again. Um, so you can have that hope out there. You know, your your job is to get them to the other end of the tunnel. Yes. Are there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to give Sanath and Ramya and all the families they represent? I have struggled with this question because we're all so different. And I, I speak with, in my work, in my advocacy work at the CGD Association of America, I speak with different patients and different patient families. And even in the, the chronic granulomatous disease uh, community, there's so many different levels. Sebastian had the most severe level of CGD. So that also um, kind of helped us in terms of determining, yes, we needed to go through this at some point. The different parts of this are, 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 are clear in that getting involved, getting engaged, I can't say enough. Um, it's, we have to fight the inertia to feel isolated. And that's even harder during COVID-19. We have to reach out to others. We have to find our community within our uh, child or our own particular disease. And that will afford us not only a sense of not being alone, but of course, uh, through uh, other patients, other parents, we are going to find other doctors, they, ones that they personally recommend. We can Google all we want, but those sorts of um, referrals from people who've been there, who've had positive outcomes, especially, that creates a sense of confidence that helps our decision-making process better. Now, after we do all of that, and we feel comfortable that we have left no rock unturned in terms of reaching out, gathering data, doing our own research, reading PubMed every night until three o'clock in the morning, which I did for years, then there's a certain point where we reach a decision that we feel comfortable we know we've done everything that we could uh, in terms of, of, of reaching that decision. Then we've got to let it go because at that point, we, we don't really have control anymore. Uh, we're at a certain level. We're giving control mostly to the doctors uh, and then also to, in my case, I have faith in God. And uh, allowing myself to feel like I wasn't control anymore was actually a relief to me. I felt like I was in such control of whether my son lived or died. And and every day I, I had to be rigid in terms of, of what he, he did in order to keep him alive. It was uh, like a tremendous burden was taken off of me when I finally did say, okay, now he's the doctor's and, and he's God's. And I was able to enjoy my son, be beside him, play with him by his bedside, uh, bring that positive and calm energy to him that he needed for his health uh, and to get well. So as far as advice that, that I have for families, I hope that uh, is something that um, it are basically three parts. It's the control what you can with, with, with uh, meeting other families and meeting other doctors. And then, um, then try to let go of that control once, once you've been able to make that decision so that you can find a sense of peace with your decision. Yeah, I don't feel necessarily comfortable putting myself in the position of giving advice. I, I'm much more in the consuming side of advice than the producing side of advice, but I would say this, there's every indication that you guys are acting heroically now. And I salute you for that. But you don't need to be heroes all the time. You're allowed to break down. You're allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to trip up. You don't have to be 
on your A game 100% of the time, 24-7, and you should have enough compassion and understanding and forgiveness for yourself if you trip up sometimes. You're not, you're not a bad person or a bad dad if that happens from time to time. That's my broad advice. And then my one specific piece of advice is make sure you're getting enough sleep because a sick kid can jam up your sleep patterns nine ways to Sunday and nothing can compromise your brain chemistry and send you on a downward spiral with the brain chemistry faster than chronic lack of sleep. So by any means necessary, ASMR, sleeping pills, meditation, whatever, get your sleep. That's as far as my advice giving goes. I love both of those advices. Thank you so much. Um, I have to take the sleep advice because as you all know, I eat sleep very less. And coming from, uh, from, from you all, Miguel and, and Felicia, I think I, I, I understand how important this advice is. So I will take it to my heart and put it to practice. Okay. And, uh, and I really look forward to following your story and learning from you because there's certainly much that we can learn from you guys and everything that you're experiencing going Again, lots of love to all of you and uh, wishing you nothing but the best. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.